0: Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon, and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. A brief survey of the theology of Job's so-called friends. Now we get the task of simply going uh, kind of section by section, and I'm going to be honest with you again, I'm I'm going massive section by massive section. um, And I'll try not to scare you like I tried to calm your fears. Uh, I'm going to go briskly. There's much more here that we could possibly chew off. uh, But I also want to be respectful of your time. And some of you have already eaten an entire Thanksgiving meal. So that's why the lights are on. That was a request from the people who have turkey hormones floating in their system already as they try to get through a sermon without shutting the eyes. But we talked last week that ultimately there is a kind of karma-like theology to Job's friends. And this kind of karma-like theology where good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff, it becomes very detrimental to relationships and to sufferers, uh, partly because that kind of belief system, number one, it doesn't hold any kind of honesty. It's not real about the facts of life. There are good people who get bad things. There are bad people who get good things. We can see this around us. In fact, that's part of the uh, questions that the proverb uh, writer has, uh, Solomon has for God. Why do the wicked prosper? They have no honesty, but also they have no sympathy. They can't relate in any sort of way towards a sufferer. Why? Because I have this elevated status because I'm a good person and I've mastered my life. And so I get really good things and I have nothing to say to you down there from my position. And ultimately, they have no compassion. There's no listening. There's no hearing. There's no real concern for the state of that person. Really, uh, it kind of is a kind of dictation where they're telling you what's up. They're telling you how life works best there's no opportunity for the sufferer to try to explain life uh, there's no compassion ultimately though the reality is there it's not just their relationships that end up tarnished it's really their theology it's their view of god that is really tarnished and out of whack unfortunately these friends though they are um, in many ways presented as the best this world has to offer in terms of worldly wisdom They have a very uh, low view of God and God and his stuff. And so their bad theology leaves them with no clear presentation of Satan. Uh, There's no real darkness. There's no real dark kingdom at work in the middle of light kingdom. It's just kind of like there's God out there and then there's just humanity and we're just kind of doing our own thing. There's no dark forces of evil at work. Certainly no foe out there that uh, is stronger than us, right? We are the masters of our fate, and so we can conquer our own problems. And if you just apply all the right principles, there's no reason for darkness to, uh, you need to overcome. Just get busy. They had no waiting. They had a, they had a, um, an eschatology that came too early. They believed that God was bringing in his kingdom right here, right now, that there was a world of perfection that can be attained. And so there's no room for the suffering Christian. And ultimately, their biggest problem As we'll continue to see tonight, is that really they had no sense of innocent suffering, which leaves them no Christology, no cross in their theology. They did not see God as a God of the cross. They see God as God of an eternal holy throne. We left our discussion last week with a a brief distinction between two different ways that we view God. There's a theology of glory where we use God's stuff to try to climb the mountain of God and ascend to the throne room of God and be there and be okay. This is classic Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, it's he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That person will receive a blessing from the Lord. And of course, from all of us, we would say, well, that's not me. Is there another way where we can view God and still be right with God? So there's a theology of glory that uses God, his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection, his wisdom. We'll use that stuff and we'll try to climb up to God using it. The problem is we have no righteousness. The problem is we don't have the wisdom of God. We are not wise. The problem is we don't have the ability to morally, spiritually get to God on our own. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, thankfully, that's not a proper theology. A theology of glory, using God's stuff to get to God, is not a proper understanding of God. What we read in the rest of our scriptures is really that God's theology, how we see God, is actually presented in the picture of the cross. It's the theology of the cross, not where... Man uses God's stuff to get to God, but God delights to use man's stuff to come reconcile himself with man. The symbol of Christianity is not a ladder like a theology of glory would indicate. The theology of the cross is iconed by a cross, a crucifixion, a life for a life. And this is what Job's friends clearly missed. They had no space for an innocent sufferer. So tonight, we're going to look at, clearly, what not to say to a sufferer. Now, I know, because we're Christians, we're going to get really big heads, because none of us have ever said these things to a sufferer. I have. I've said just about every single one of these things to a suffering person, and I put my foot in my mouth, and I kicked myself, come on, how did I say that? Ultimately, we know That the only comfort we have in this life, what is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but belong to a cross. Our life is fixed in a cross. We are not our own, but have been bought with a price. We've been bought and now are not our own, but are our saviors, both body and soul, through the purchase of a cross. But let's look at what not to say to a sufferer. We're going to meet Job's friend Eliphaz. We're going to go through his uh, little portion here, chapters four through five, and I'm just going to kind of go section by section, and we're going to pick out what is Eliphaz trying to communicate. Ultimately, uh, there's three things I think Eliphaz is trying to say to Job. Ultimately, we know that Job gets around saying, you guys are no comfort. You guys are no help. Well, we're going to look at exactly what we need to hear as sufferers through this. The first thing Eliphaz wants us, wants Job to hear, that you should never say. Stop being troubled. Stop being troubled. Then Eliphaz, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? This is a weird phrase. You remember Job in chapter 3 just spilled his guts in every single kind of raw way possible. The darkest passage in scripture that I've read. Job comes out and Eliphaz has kind of something to say. Basically, he comes to Job and says, hey, um, you mind shutting your mouth a little bit? And could you give me just your ears? Do you mind just listening for just a second? I know that might be hard for you. We all have a hard time shutting our mouth." This is how Eliphaz begins his statement. Yet who can keep from speaking? It's really hard, Joe, but can you just try for just a second? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the fear of your, uh, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. I love this. Come on, Job. You used to be really good at this whole suffering thing. In fact, you used to be the guy that we would go to when we had suffering. And you would tell us all of these wonderful things about how we could work our way out of it, how we can beat all of this stuff, how we could pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But now that pain has come to you, you want to complain and whine and carry on. Come on, man. You should you should you should stop. You should listen to your own words. We haven't written down. Would you like to read your own notes? In fact, wasn't this beginning like weren't you touting at the beginning, I have the fear of God. I have the integrity of hope. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm doing. And of course, this is profound irony, is it not? Because the reality is this was Satan's accusation against Job. I I bet you he'll 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 curse God. I bet you he'll flip on his integrity. Truly, actually, in verse 6, that was Job's confidence. Who he knew God to be. Who, Who he had as his hope. Yet, I think there's an interesting kind of turn of phrase that Eliphaz has if you're listening kind of carefully. He says, Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways your hope? He almost makes like, Job's understanding of God as some sort of like badge of honor of, of personal performance that Job gets to wear. Weren't you pointing to yourself as this guy who had God all figured out? And Job's like, no, I wasn't boasting in like my theology. I was just, that's who God is. I was resting in who God was. And the reality is, yes, I, understanding who God is, it transforms your life and it gives you faith and repentance. I mean, I wasn't leaning on my own performance, but yeah, I mean, I tried to be like as clear as you got. What you see is what you get. Of course, we know that Job is innocent here in this regard. And yeah, his fear of God, who he knows God to be, that is his confidence. His integrity, how God has allowed him to have cleanness and integrity in his life, confessing sin and repenting of his sin and turning to God. Yeah, that's certainly hopeful. And Job knew all that. I think ultimately, Eliphaz is trying to communicate to Job, you used to be strong, man, but now you're weak. Come on. What's your problem? I can give you your notes. Don't you have the answers? Eliphaz also tries to communicate to Job, you used to be innocent, but now you're guilty. I actually think verse 7 is an entire capstone of, we talked about this last week, an entire capstone of the missing piece of their theology. And this isn't just for Eliphaz, this is the rest of his friends uh, and Elihu, certainly down, down the line as well. I think this one phrase might summarize the entire missing piece of what they believe to be true about God. He says this in verse seven. Remember, Job, come on, don't miss this. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen. Where where is the person who has died innocently? Where is that guy? That person doesn't exist. I mean in my experience, if you die, it's probably because you deserved it. If you're living, it's probably because you've done pretty well to keep going on, man. Who who suffers innocently? I mean really. Who has problems where they kind of had it coming the whole time? As I have seen, I circled some pretty uh, gutsy phrases that uh, Eliphaz made. Uh, go, you can see that in verse 8. He he mentions this, as I have seen. Uh, in ch- in verse 12, look, he says, now a word was brought to me, a kind of personal phrase. You can go uh, all the way to uh, Job 5, verse 3. As I have seen, and in and verse 8 of chapter 5, as for me, Eliphaz drops these kinds of like, self-perspective drops all along the way that are little hints as to how Eliphaz is interpreting life. I mean, according to my perspective, as I'm just kind of feeling things out, later on we're going to get in this little spooky vision, I've had a, I've had a vision that something kind of came to me. Be, be, be weary, not weary, be, be cautious of people who interpret God through the lens of themselves. Be cautious of people who see God through their own lenses and don't ask questions about God and who he is. Be be careful of people who are not curious about God. To me, that's one of the beautiful things about Christianity. Christianity does not have all the answers, and I think that that's good news for sufferers. It's good news for people Because that frees me from the burden of having to interpret God through my own lenses. It means I get to look to God and ask questions of him. And know that he holds the keys. He holds the the cards. He has things in his hand that he's reserving that I won't get to see until I see him face to face. And that helps me in life. It's actually a comfort. I don't have everything figured out. And if I can't just plug in all the right pieces and have God all boxed out and figured out and push all the right buttons, it's like a vending machine where we get what we want. It's not how life works. Eliphaz would love you to interpret God through your own lens. But this idea of innocent suffering is really actually controversial. In verse 8, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. I mean, doesn't life work this way? Doesn't even the Bible say you reap what you sow? I mean, isn't that scriptural language, turns out? That's actual Jesus' language, right? Those are Jesus' words. Paul picks up that same idea in Galatians 6. You can look at Matthew 13, where Jesus clearly describes you do reap what you sow. That is absolutely true, right? We have this phrase that we see online all the time. You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. That's how life works. And there's a little bit of, not a little bit, there's a lot of truth in that. Of course, Romans 13 actually bears out the fact that God sets up people to hand out those stupid prizes when you do stupid things. Your governing officials don't bear the sword in vain. So if you decide to go 125 in a 55 zone, my friend, they're not willy-nilly. They're executing the wrath of God in those places. They're helping you see the fear of God in those spaces. And my friends, you shouldn't just simply think, oh, well, God is merciful and kind. I'll face no consequences. Oh, my friend, there will be real consequences in this life. But here's the reality. Here's the missing piece. Here's the distinction that needs to be made between this reality. A lot of times we tend to think, That things that happen right here on the ground of my life, the consequences, the reap what you sow kind of actions, that somehow that gets flipped vertically. And the same things that happen with the policeman when I blow the speed limit, that that's how God feels about me. That the horizontal consequences of life reflect some sort of vertical disposition of God. That when I mess up and don't do things right at home and when my spouse gets upset or when things break down because I'm, I'm foolish in my home and I don't do what I'm supposed to do relationally and life is harder and life doesn't work out, that somehow things have also changed with God. And this, has, this, was, this was their missing theology. There, there is no such thing as an innocent sufferer. You get what you pay for. And this works into its relationship with God. My friend, there were horizontal things that were going on in Job's life, and it had nothing to do with God's view of Job and his love for Job. Nothing. And yes, you might be experiencing some terminal judgment here that God even has set up, rightfully so. There might be things you're paying for now that are actually from things that you have sown back in the past. And these might even add to your suffering here and now, for sure. I think we can all recognize that. There is a little bit of karma into all of life. This is a natural law of life, and we would do well to bend into God's natural law, to see his natural law, and even to fear it. Again, Romans 13, the people who execute the law do not bear these things in vain. So listen, as if they are set up by God, for they are. Yet, We can't bring the horizontal consequences of life into our vertical relationship with God. By doing things down here below, we can't undo what God has done for you in Christ. Just because we have things in Romans 13 that talk about the law and people who have been executed, or people who are executing the law even for God, that doesn't hijack Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's showing you that there's life here before man and life before God. For those of you here in the earlier hour, sound familiar? Yes, there are horizontal consequences and Jesus is clear and happy to say, yeah, there is a natural law. You will reap what you sow. But as believers, something has been sown for us. There has been a seed that has already brought forth an eternal reward, an eternal fruit for us. And that, my friend, cannot be taken away. And so you shouldn't see things going on in this life as directly translatable to how God views you. That picture has already been settled in Christ. That score has already been settled in Him. Eliphaz cannot comprehend that. He can't comprehend somebody suffering in the place of someone who rightfully deserved to suffer, an innocent sufferer. There's no act of substitution in Eliphaz's mind. It's simply law. You get what you get. Job doesn't buy into that. I'm I'm righteous. I didn't do anything. This is innocent suffering. There's something else going on here. Verse 9, by the breath of God they perish, these bad people, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Kind of interesting stuff. He actually plays on different aspects or different stages of a lion's life and uh, developmental stages and still shows that at the end of the day, as strong as you were throughout different stages of a lion's life, you get to the end and the lion's teeth falls out and the lion dies. You get what you get. If you're a lion, you better hope that you've been stocking up your stuff so that when you don't have teeth, you still have something to numb on. You were innocent, but now you're guilty. What's your problem, Job? Can you just stop being troubled? Can you stop? Whatever you're doing, can you just stop it? What not to say to a sufferer, number two, stop being foolish. Stop being foolish. You're not wise, Job. You're not seeing this wisely. You're seeing this as a fool. He makes it very clear that there's a kind of deservedness that people have to have in order to get into heaven only wise people deserve heaven only people who get to heaven are people who have been able to figure life out have the skill to get life done and how do you get that skill well my friend you have to have a dream god has to talk to you in private he says this in verse 12 now a word was brought to me when i was all alone and nobody else could attest to what was going on let me just tell you about this i didn't write it down because it was so special i'm just telling you now you're the first person to ever hear it you You might be the last person to ever hear it again. It's that special. A word was brought to me stealthily. My ears received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all of my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice not that the spookiest thing you've ever heard? It's actually good drama. But listen to what he says. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even his servants he puts, to, uh, he puts no trust. And his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, and who are crushed like the moth. Between the morning and the evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? He uses this spooky vision to try to highlight that there are those who can make it, There are those who don't. And if you're curious as to whether or not you're one of those people who have the wisdom, just know that sometimes even angels don't make it. And sometimes really strong other kinds of people, they don't make it either. And so you really have to be this special kind of wise person like me to be able to have this kind of vision and know the wisdom of God and to have all the secret sauce that God gives to you and requires of you. And you got to go do it. Joe, man, what is your problem? When are you going to have a spooky vision? When are you going to be told the secret things of God? When are you going to have everything you need to figure your life out? What Eliphaz is saying is there's a sense to which it's mostly true, scarily enough. Those questions... It is a haunting question, is it not? It's a real question that lingers in our minds. It lingers in every person's soul. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? The only thing is, we're arguing that with like not a lot of clarity, apart from Jesus. Eliphaz thinks he's figured it out. Eliphaz is saying, like, I've got that. He has confidence that he's the one who's been able to make it. Job, Yeah, we're kind of waiting on him. He's got to get over this suffering thing. I think once he figures that out, maybe then he can have a spooky dream and he can move forward with his life. Only the wise people get to heaven. And Job, man, only the fools live like hell. So call now, Job. Chapter 5, verse 1. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of those holy ones, those angels or really special people, to who of those will you turn? Surely your vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. Surely surely your suffering is killing you, you foolish person. And surely your jealousy of what I have is messing with you. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling or I saw his that I saw the cursedness of his dwelling. It's hard to know whether or not he's proclaiming a curse here or is he, he's just recognizing that foolish people kind of have what seems to be a cursed life. I actually think that in some way, this is Eliphaz's way of actually doing some condemnation work against Job in his life. Um, again, the language is hard to tell whether or not he's pronouncing a curse or just recognizing a cursedness. Um, but again, we, we kind of know from Job's wife, and from their earlier stages of meeting Job, they, they understood that there was some level of curse. There was, cursing was okay in, in his context, recognizing that. But listen to verses 4 through 7. And it's like he's announcing what a fool's life would be looked like if it was cursed. And you're going to hear like, Job almost be like, what you just said is, is my life. Like You just basically said my life is cursed. Look, look what he says in verse 4. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of uh, even out of thorns, and the thirsty plant after his wealth, pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But a man is born to trouble, and sparks fly upward. I mean, literally, he just described what happened to Job just chapters earlier. His children get crushed. All of his crops pass away. He sits in dust, and as he sits in dust, it's like as the sparks fly upward from from the ground, fighting gravity, so is a foolish person fleeing from the normal laws of life. And Job's like, nice, thanks. i you know I can hear you. Like you know I can I hear you. Only the fools live like hell, he's saying. Those people who can't figure out life, those are the foolish people, Job Pretty clear, man. It's pretty obvious. You're on your way. So what possibly could be Eliphaz's solution, right? It's like he's made all of this very clear. He's laid it out. All right, Job's an idiot. Job's a fool. He can't do life right. He's not going to get to heaven. He doesn't have the secret wisdom stuff, right? He's clearly troubled. He's not moving closer towards away from that stuff. He's moving closer into it. What's his problem? What is Eliphaz's solution? Well, he was serious. Well, Job, come on, man. Stop being hopeless. Stop being hopeless. Be hopeful. You're not, it's not the end. Let me, let me tell you what I would do. Verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, man. I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets, uh, he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. God rewards the good. Behold, blessed is the one who, uh, who the, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. I'll continue to read there, but the first thing he wants us to see in the first little passage there is that God judges the bad. Of course, this fits right in line with this idea of of karma. God is after going after bad people. But also this reality that God ends up rewarding really good people. This is what he says in verses 17 and following. He gets to this idea of, Job, obviously your life has kind of come to an end. We've discovered that you're kind of this bad dude and God's at work. He's, he's clearly judging you. He's going after you. He's bringing an end to all of your life. This is clearly God's God's hand. But man, if you could just flip the script a little bit, if you could just flip the script on your own life and start to realize that if you just start being good, man, just start, get off your trouble train and just get on the life of like hope and happiness, get back with God, you know, he'll start to do really good things for you. What's funny is Again, I want to say there's a lot of truth in what he says. In fact, there's a lot of maybe even gospel language here. There is is no real gospel, but you'll hear, it's almost like you know Eliphaz went to church because he's using churchy language. Look what he says in verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Doesn't this sound like Hebrews? God disciplines the one he loves, man. Come on. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he uh, for he wounds, yet he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. I mean, this is literally like Eliphaz knew Jesus existed. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For ye shall be in a league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. Almost sounds like the book of Revelation, right? This final end to come. It's like he knew what redemption was. He knew what restoration uh, was all about. Verse 24, You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. And you shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come into your grave in a ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. It's amazing how hurtful churchy language is without the idea of substitution, isn't it? It's amazing how Hard it is to hear about this idea of redemption and restoration and God making all things new, unless you see your suffering located somewhere in God's hands. But it's like when once you begin to see the God of the cross, redemption makes sense. redemption redemption is kind of put in its right place. It's almost like you long for the process, not just the the reality at the end. And you can kind of see this overrealized eschatology here, this no waiting. Come on, you can have your best life right here and right now with all these Christianese kinds of phrases, but what's missing is this leap of faith of God who comes to you and actually takes your sin and your suffering and your shame and your guilt and bears them as his own. That's what's clearly missing in his theology. You see, Job's friends wrongly communicated to Job that suffering and blessedness in this life is directly related to your Christian performance, how you live for God, how you're able to manage your life, do all the right things, say all the right things, become the right kind of person. Job's friends clearly communicated and wrongly and hurtfully so that suffering and blessedness is all about you and what you do. And if you're not receiving the blessedness that you want for well, plug in a little good stuff. If you're suffering way too much, more than Jesus wants you to, well, come on, man, find out all the bad stuff you're doing and, and get yourself back on board. My friends, one of the main reasons God gives you suffering is to free you from the burden of your performance. That's one of the beautiful things he gives you in suffering. It's like for the first time, he's given you clear glasses where you're able to like put them on and finally see, I'm not doing that well. I'm not doing so hot. You know, I don't have this thing figured out. I, I'm really not a wise person, am I? I'm really not plugging in all these timeless biblical principles like I should. I'm not doing this stuff. I think that's why James says, again, a verse that we should all know because we just studied it not too long ago. But I think that's why it's so surprising when James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of what you're trusting, the object of your faith, the provenness of what you are leaning on, showing that Jesus is strong for you time and time again, showing you over and over again that you were never intended to lean on yourself, but you were intended to lean on something actually strong and wise and good, on him. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You keep going. Why? Because Jesus was strong for you. It has nothing to do with you and your performance. You're trusting in his righteousness, and that allows you to be a little bit more enduring in whatever you're going through. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let the suffering keep doing the work. Let it keep working on you until you have nothing except Jesus to hang on. And you know what you'll find at that blessed moment? A reason to celebrate and have joy? All you have is Jesus, and that is enough. All you have is him and his record, him and his suffering, him and his righteousness, him and his atonement. You have all of that stuff and you find yourself perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So my friends, count it all joy. Isn't that surprising? That is totally opposite of Job and his friends and and what he would recommend. Here's, Here's something that Job teaches us. Though you have trouble and it may be from God, I'm happy to recognize that, though you have trouble from God, that doesn't mean you're in trouble with God. Though you have trouble from God, I'm happy to recognize that God is sovereignly working things out in your life, even giving suffering to his children so that it may knock out all the props from underneath us and we might fully rest on Jesus. I'm fully happy to think through all of that and rest in that. And that, like To me, that works with God's sovereignty and even his goodness attached to that. It's fine. still makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm not God, so it's good news. But just because we have trouble from God, it does not mean that we are in trouble with God. Jesus has taken all of our trouble on himself and he has paid the punishment. You are not being judged by how you suffer or don't suffer for God. God is casting you through your suffering on the only hope you have in your suffering, the fact that it's his suffering that sets you free. Job's friends wrongly communicated that hope in God only looks like happiness and blessedness. Job's friends wrongly communicated that hope in God, trusting in God, placing your faith in God, being perfect and complete, lacking nothing, even while tears are rolling down your face. They wrongly communicated that that kind of hope is looks only like happiness and blessedness. A good uh, friend and um, teacher, um, Chad Bird. Some of you guys know Chad. Uh, you know he's had a, a rough year. His son was tragically... Um, Taken this year, uh, just a couple months ago, at a, at a hiking trip. Uh, his son was in the Naval Academy there on a hiking trip, and his son um, fell off a waterfall and um, was taken, taken to Jesus. so all happened this year, and he's been processing that. Um, he put on Facebook today, and I'm happy to share, and I think this is rightly true, amens, anger, and anguish swirl inside the faithful. And God, because of Christ, will accept them all. Amens, anger, and anguish swirl inside the faithful. And God, because of Christ, will accept them all. And my friend, the only reason that God accepts this is because God himself wrestles with this reality. Because he too suffered. He, he too knew what it meant to tragically and suddenly lose a friend. Did he not stand at the grave of his friend and weep? Did he not look to God and say, Father, let this cup pass from me? Did he not, out of the anguish of his soul, make prayers of amen for you and for me? Oh, my friend, he did. And so now he is before the throne taking your prayers, and perfectly, and in a high priestly way, without sin, righteously, with his wounds of his suffering, is now praying for you and praying with you, with your amens, and with your anger, with your anguish and your grief. And my friend, God hears them. The famous hymn says, he cannot turn away the presence of his son. The spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My friend, he hears you. He hears you on on account of his own suffering. The only hope we have ends up looking like foolishness. It's the cross. Your life taking this shape by virtue of your suffering is actually more evidence of God's loving presence and his commitment towards you. Your suffering is not this this picture from God that he's moving away from you. Your suffering actually might reflect God's suffering in a way that actually is is, is helpful and encouraging. As your life takes the shape of the cross, my friends, as those of us who look around your life and as you seek to trust God and not seek God in his glory and say, I'm going to get out of this, I'm going to move forward in this, but as you see Jesus hidden on the cross, and you see his suffering as you seek God there, my friend, we see that too. And we see your cruciformed life and know what we're saying to you. That looks a lot like Jesus. You have everything you need. Keep going. And certainly, if there's anything we can do to help, let us know. We want to bear burdens with you. We don't want to speak bad news to you like Job's friends. We want to speak the gospel of his suffering for you. Will you let us into your life Some of you know people in this room who are suffering in big ways. In big ways. And one of the biggest things I think they can hear is this idea that what they are facing here and now, the consequences of life, maybe it's their consequences or other people's consequences that they are trying to bear themselves under. There's also guilt and shame attached to that. And what they need to hear more than anything is that these horizontal consequences have nothing to do with God's vertical perspective of who they are in Christ. In fact, these things actually might be a little bit of a, of a reflection of what God intends to do in them because of Jesus' suffering. His presence is real in their life; it's working. He's there. His promises are there, and His family is there as well. That's right. Free from the. Salve